Offside with Andrew Gunling and J.J. Devaney. Oh, yes. Caught offside from the suburbs of New York City in an apartment in Brooklyn, New York. Andrew Gunling and J.J. Devaney. What's up, brother? What's going on, Andrew? How are you? I'm doing very well. It's another snowy day. This is, it's almost unprecedented. Clearly, Mother Nature is making up for the last two winters where I feel like we got no snow. No, we didn't. And now it's, it's relentless. I, I feel, though, on Sunday as I was, uh, I was out and about in Brooklyn, there was mounds of snow. It was dark. There was a wind. It was very cold. I felt that the, the elements of nature are what we call in sync with me, which is called pathetic fallacy. That's how my mood was, dark and, and grim. Very Shakespearean. Yeah, I wonder why that could have been. On a related note, we about will the talk a lot about Liverpool uh, coming up. Uh, Tony Evans of The Independent will go in the club with us. He covers Liverpool at The Independent. Um, so he's going to join us momentarily. He's a scouser. He yeah, is a it, man of, uh, he's been to his fair few games. This is almost unprecedented, JJ. Typically when we do any kind of in the club segment, we, we usually like reserve, like Tottenham and Liverpool are usually exempt from that because we almost feel like, well, we can, we'll handle those. But right. the situation at Liverpool has become so grim and I, I believe that you're so ill-equipped to handle it. Oh, steady uh, So on. we needed to get a true professional who can actually give sort of like an unbiased you know, view of what's actually going on there as opposed to your very much filtered take. But Andrew, this is, this is my comeuppance. My uppance has come because, let's be honest, the last three, four years, it's been how great Liverpool have been, exciting, enjoyable, winning trophies. And I've never had to give myself the in-the-club treatment because the in-the-club treatment has turned into when a club's in crisis, let's talk about them. Know. You know, so... So the sad I, thing I, is, in amongst your comeuppance, I feel like there was one brief oasis where I just needed to get mine too. Like Liverpool are in the midst of this brutal stretch with the only bright spot being yet another win over Tottenham. And then they went right back into their brutal right, stretch. Well, right. Um, quite so, Andrew. But, uh, you know, I would still sooner watch Liverpool lose 4-1 than have to endure, uh, you know, an hour and a half of Jose Mourinho ball at Tottenham. That's the truth. You just don't understand what beautiful soccer looks like. Uh, how did you enjoy the Super Bowl? Um, yeah, it was In terms of American customs, is that, is that among Oh, your I love it. Yeah. Like, I had a great time with everything surrounding the game itself. The game, I, I always like a good game. And yeah. um, this was not. This was not that. It certainly wasn't. And it wasn't what anyone predicted. You got to give credit to what the, the Bucks defense did and, and to old man Brady. Um, but uh, yeah, it wasn't a good uh, ceremony. And then it was ruined at the end by the presentation of the Vince Lombardi trophy to, let's be honest, the MVP, uh, Joel Glazer. Has any man done more for the Tampa Bay Bucks? Well, you he know? did acquire uh, Tom Brady. Yeah, well, I, I, right, okay. And after, then Gronk and Antonio Brown and so on I and mean, so af forth. After years of passing on uh, United's debt to the, to the Buccaneers organization. Um, so you are. would go so far as to say that the entire event was ruined. Is that what you just said? No. It was ruined by that moment of the trophy being handed to ownership. No, it, it will always irk me, though. Always irk me. Bruce Arians should have that, or Tom Brady has it first, or JPP. No, 
not a not some executive owner. This this is this it, it's so. I, I would agree. I would say it should always go to the coach first. And then oh, the coach absolutely. Decide which player he kind of wants to present it with next. Usually the MVP. Uh, it's but, funny but, though but, because but I, I would it, I would think that the Super Bowl would be an event that you would come to loathe because oh, it's no. because as as fun as it is or can be, it's also like the commercial corporate event of the year. And yeah. this is like a, a thing that you at least publicly present this image that you despise that. Yeah, but I, I think, I mean, in life as in, you know, we make accommodations and, um, you know, this is a slice of Americana, whatever way you split it. Like there's, there's lots of things that are, you know, have now become camp or kitsch or, or even become high art that originally started out as, you know, how can I make money out of this product? Cheesy. Mm -hmm corporate and and um, you make accommodations and i enjoy the super bowl i love the pageantry of it i think it's uh i think it's a lot of fun and half the fun is how overblown things are you know there's very few i mean world oh, chat you think a nine hour pregame show is uh <laughs> is too much build up <laughs> yeah it's it's incredible um yeah. and um no, I, I, I accept it for what it is. I'll tell you this, yeah. though, because there, there couldn't be Super Bowl parties or anything like that. But, like, you know, sometimes you, you still – I think a lot of people still wanted to try to at least somewhat simulate that experience. So Amanda asked me um, – she was like, is there anything that you want in particular for the game? And only one thing. Because, you know – I pretty much, I treat Doritos like they're some kind of illegal drug that I'm trying to get clean from. <laughs> uh, my obsession with them, I can't handle how much I love them. And so one day it's, a year, I kind of give myself like a true cheat day. And so when she asked me that, I said, just one thing, the biggest bag of Doritos that you can possibly find. You yet. are a basic, and, basic man. Yeah, that was all I wanted. And by the end of the first quarter, I looked like the Dorito version of Tyrone Biggums. I, I can only imagine that whatever sweater you were wearing was just ruined. Covered in Dorito dust. But at any rate, JJ, let's get into this now. So we're taking a little bit of a different approach to the podcast today because as many of you have noticed, and as we have pointed out from time to time, um, our red cards, our, our man of the match, woman of the match, person of the match, whatever, um, we've, we've kind of drifted from doing that every week and it's become like an every so often when we feel like it kind of thing. Cause you know, it's fun to do and it's fun to point out somewhat like alternative stories. Um, but we also don't want to force it necessarily. And sometimes there are certain weeks where we just feel like, I don't know if it's necessary this week, but I know a lot of you like it. So we uh, we've kind of like repositioned the podcast this week and we're going to make up for lost time. And we're going to just basically do a red card man of the match edition of caught offside. And we've okay. got a few different topics here that we've kind of like grouped into whether or not they fall under red cards or man of the match. So we will, we'll get to, we'll get to many, many things under those two headings and let's start JJ. Let's start with, I always like starting with the bad so we can end on a high note. So oh, well, we'll, start I like with, the, we'll start with red cards. I like the fact that you've used the bad because we're going to begin with the bad champions, according to Roy Keane. They've been bad champions. It is, of course, Liverpool. That's right. They've been very naughty. Now they can sit in the corner until we yes. tell them they can come out. That's right, JJ. Our first red card goes to Liverpool. Uh, 27 fewer points at this point in the season as opposed to what they had last season. That is, that is a jarring number. Now it's, of course, skewed somewhat by how insanely good their season was a year ago. Obviously, even if they were having a great season, they would likely be uh, off the pace of where they were a year ago. However, it does paint a picture of how this season has, has kind of spiraled in a way that I'm curious if you expected or did not expect. I think um, 
I, I, I always felt a fall off was coming. Um, and, I, and I'll get to that fall off later and, and, and the genesis of it. But, you know, as a Liverpool fan, I was thinking at some point this team has to slow down. Now, what's happened is it's come off the, the high point of beating Crystal Palace, like thumping them 7-0. And then it's descended into like two wins against Tottenham and West Ham United. But, but generally, I didn't expect it to go off a cliff quite so quickly in such a, a kind of small space of time. Maybe I should have. But um, yeah, and, and Keane talking about bad champions there. You know, Keane is the very man that spoke on Sky Sports uh, in or around Christmas. Actually, not in or around Christmas. In the midst of Liverpool's first rough patch uh, back in January when they drew, three weeks ago really, when they drew nil-nil with, with Manchester United. Keane was saying how he, he still fancied Liverpool to be champions. He still believed they were the, the best team in the league and that they go on and do it. So I think the bad champions was his, his... Roy Keane is nothing if not a man who loves to hold a grudge. And this was going back to when Jurgen Klopp publicly humiliated him on Sky Sports about um, the sloppiness of Mr. Keane. Oh, so uh, did I... personal. Oh, yeah. Oh, absolutely. Um, this is uh, I didn't even this think is a, about that. That's, that's great putting those together. He clutches grudges together, and he did yeah. not enjoy the way he was spoken to by Jurgen Klopp in that post-match interview, which we featured on the podcast back and in And for what uh, it's worth, I, I did think that Jurgen Klopp was, was a little bit out of line. I don't know, and maybe he knew it. Maybe he was trying to use Roy Keane as some way of getting a message to his team. Uh, I don't know, but I thought that Klopp was a little bit, I don't know. Yeah, didn't feel oh, right origin. I think it was after the Arsenal game. Yeah, it was the, after the Arsenal game. He just game said that, that they game. were pl- that they were sloppy, right? Yeah, and 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 Klopp was very very touchy about that. And we'll get to Klopp's further touchiness later. But again, um, I do think that that was Keane settling a score because I often watch games and where he goes in on Manchester United, and I look at the opposition and I think he is no axe to grind against the opposition. Therefore, United are going to get it, and equally. He had no axe to grind against Manchester City because when he was a player, he dominated Manchester City. He did, they were nothing for, for all of his career. And so it's good to go in two-footed, so to speak, on Liverpool. Now, um, just to answer your question, basically, I didn't, I didn't see it going quite like this, right. quite so quickly. I thought there'd be a drop-off. I didn't think the drop-off would be off the side of a cliff. I think what's, what's most surprising is you're right. I agree with that, that there had to be like, you just simply could not continue at the rate that Liverpool had been going the last couple of seasons. Um, but they could still have been a very good team this season. And in the end, who knows, they may still wind up being that. Uh, what surprised me the most is, okay, so the injuries at center back, I think we all knew once those began to pile up, we were going to see some issues yes, uh, at that and that part of the field for them. And that makes sense. Now, I know that, you know, in, in one way or another, it's a team sport and all elements of the, of the snake are connected. So, you know, if you have problems in the back, it's going to affect you in other areas. Having said that, um, w- with maybe a couple exceptions here and there, you know, the front three have remained healthy. And I guess I just didn't expect, you know, like, like I, can, I can deal with a 4-1 to Man City. I, I, can, I can understand that, you know, losing to Manchester United in the FA Cup, 3-2, I, I get that. But like it's the one nils getting shut out against right. Brighton. It's you know it's it's the one nil defeat to Burnley. It's drawing nil nil with Newcastle. One uh, one one with West Brom. Losing one nil to Southampton. Like a lot of nils against yes. what we would consider to be 
pretty inferior opposition. I think that is what has been most surprising to me that I, that I did not see coming. Yeah. I, I think, you know, if you look at last week's game against, against Brighton, um, you know, all the ball and Liverpool fell into this kind of turgid, slow, uh, really didn't trouble Brighton. And Brighton actually had more of the chances on the break and connected the best move of the game, which ended up in the back of the net. That's the kind of thing we didn't expect. But don't forget, Andrew, there were, there were fine margins last season that Liverpool were operating on when they were beating teams. Leicester at home, um, Bournemouth at home as well. You know, Liverpool were the better side, but the th- they were getting the rub of those results. And, and now they're definitely not. Um, and so we have to look into reasons for that. Uh, I, was, I was just doing a, a I heard a, a remarkable stat um, on another podcast that said that Andy Robertson has the, had the most amount of touches of any player in, the, in Europe's top five leagues. The most amount of touches, the most amount of touches on the ball. I was like, that's incredible. And I went to the Premier League uh, stats and he's miles ahead. <laughs> he has had the most amount of touches. And I thought that is interesting. And it kind of speaks to the way Liverpool have been playing a lot through him. And I started thinking about a comment I make regularly when Liverpool have a dip. And the comment is that they've been on the go for three years, solidly on the go. And this team has been on the go. And the reaction I get to that often is, oh, well, you know, every team is on the go. Players play games. Liverpool having to play games, that's nothing new. And I'm like, okay, well, if you add in the first 11 are pretty much set in stone, including that front three. And if you add in the fact that, you know, it has been this team all the way through playing this intense style of football. So somebody must have been listening. I'm sure he wasn't listening to me, but Jamie Carragher on Sky Sports took up this, this, uh, this example. And he, he looked at the 2018 Champions League final team and he analyzed what percentage of minutes, of Premier League minutes, these players have played since the 2018 final. Andrew, so the, the, we'll forget, a, well, we're trying to forget about the goalkeeper in this case, Loris Carriers. That doesn't count because this is about intensity and an intensity of minutes. So the back four that night was Trent Alexander-Arnold, Dejan Lovren, Virgil van Dijk, and Andy Robertson. So Dejan Lovren, forget about that, but just take, take the back three there. Trent Alexander-Arnold, 83% of the minutes. Virgil van Dijk, 81% of the minutes, and Andy Robertson, 94% of the minutes played. The midfield, which was Milner, Henderson, and Wijnaldum. So, you know, you can slot in Fabinho for Milner as the regular starter there, uh, who came in later uh, after the 2018 final. So that's Henderson with 65% of the minutes, Wijnaldum with 85%. And the front three, Salah, Firmino, and Mane, since the Champions League final in 2018, 89% for Salah, 83% for Formino, and for Mane, 85%. Yeah. That is a lot of load. That is a huge amount of load. And these guys are pushing up a little bit. They're getting in towards that period where, you know, you're thinking of 30 years of age. Do I move this guy on? Is he in decline? Do we keep him? This conversation is happening right now as regards Wijnaldum. That's a lot of football, Andrew. It's a huge amount of football. Now, going back to, to the game at the weekend, because I don't want to make this all about, oh, Liverpool's long-term decline, this result was coming. This could have been a 2-1 defeat, maybe even a 2-2 draw. Or I, I, I'm quite happy to say here, Manchester City could have won it by narrow margins or could have won it maybe 2-1 or 3-1. When your goalkeeper at a crucial moment kicks in effectively two goals, 
then that is going to change the complexion of a game. I don't think Liverpool were that bad at the weekend, but I do think they had a meltdown. What he did was shocking. There's no other Powerful. way around it. And the fact that he got away with the first mistake, only to immediately, I guess, write that again. wrong. It was like he was handed a get-out-of-jail-free card by a police officer, and then he turned around and punched that police officer in the face to make sure he went to prison. We've all, we've all seen the sideshow Bob where he keeps stepping on the rakes, and then he ends up in a, in a parking lot that is just full of rakes, and he makes sure he stands on every one, and it just drags on forever. And all you can hear is, oh, <laughs> this was uh, Allison. How can I make this mistake again and again? And, um, and to give City their credit, and it just shows the kind of role reversal. Those, remember Ederson in 17-18 kicking one to Salah who punishes him immediately? The mistakes that uh, City made in those games, Liverpool were making in this game. Going to Anfield and making mistakes was the preserve of Manchester City for a while. And now it, uh, that, that role reversal happened in the form of... Um, of Alison Becker. Well, I'll tell you what, JJ, let's continue this now as we go in the club with Liverpool, a thing that we have not done before because, let's face it, a lot of this, this podcast is spent in the club already with Liverpool, but we're taking it to an even deeper level. Uh, Tony Evans from The Independent, he covers them. He joins us now to, uh, to talk about kind of what's gone wrong of late. Tony, what's up? How are you? Oh, I'm good. How are things, chaps? We're doing well. Well, I was... We were doing better until, until uh, Sunday, Tony, but um, I suppose that's what we're going to get into with you. Uh, how do you explain what happened on Sunday? Oh, it was common, wasn't it? You know, it's, um, I, I, I was talking to a couple of people last week, I you know, did some radio over here, and I said I had huge fears that City would use this as an opportunity to assert the dominance. You know what? There's a lot of bad feeling between the two clubs. They don't like each other. So when they got the chance to stick the knife in, uh, they did. And unfortunately, Liverpool opened themselves up and said, just put it here. <laughs> I think one of the things with Liverpool that's been most interesting, and JJ and I were talking about this before you came on, is this kind of this drop-off that's occurred um, from the last couple seasons to where they are right now. And it's not that the season has, you know, but they're not, they're not fighting to stay up or anything of that matter. They could still qualify for top four. But yeah, I'm just, I guess I'm just curious, like, we talk about the injuries. We talk about the, the frenetic pace of their schedule, uh, players who are being kind of off the pace of where they were in past seasons. What do you kind of attribute, I, I guess, the, the primary reason for Liverpool being where they are right now? Um, I think it's simple. I didn't think they strengthened from a position of power. After they won the Champions League, they brought in no one really who could contribute to the first team. Um, of course, um, Minamino come in in the January, but again, he was a bit of a punt. And then last summer, they brought two players in, good players. You know, Jota obviously had a huge effect. And Thiago, who was a fantastic player, but wasn't enough. Basically, what they should have done is brought in more players, freshened up the dressing room, got rid of some of the dead wood in the squad. I mean, one of the things last summer, they had to get rid of Origi and they yeah. had to get rid of Shakiri, who neither of them are good enough to contribute at the standard that's needed. And they didn't. So it's all gone a bit stale. And of course, selling Lovren, who, which was the right thing to do because... He hadn't had the greatest Liverpool career, and he wasn't the greatest centre-half. But if you sell a centre-half, you've got four of them. You need four. Bring one in. And obviously, no one could have 
predicted that they're going to lose the three front line centers. But the job of the analytics department, the job of the manager, and the job even of the owners is to say, look, it's a risk going in with three. We can't do this. And he did this. And uh, all, everything's come home to roost now. But the roots of it were in not, not strengthening from a position of strength. Tony, um, I don't want to make you the harbinger of doom here, but I'm going to ask a, a question. Do you see potential tensions down the line between FSG and between Jurgen Klopp? Because if I'm getting what you're saying, um, you talk, or at least you're talking about a rebuild. Fergie was always, not a rebuild, excuse me, a replenishing. We'll call it that. Mm, yeah. Fergie was always able to do that with his United sides. Three players will go out three veterans who had done well and he'd bring in some fresh players or some squad players from the academy, whatever he needed to do. Do you think FSG are willing to do that? Do you, do you see maybe that in the current financial constraints that they may not do that and that there could be a problem for Klopp? Uh, JJ, as far as I've ever seen, and I've been critical of Fenway for you know so a, a, a lot of reasons, but they've always provided the money when it's necessary. Mm. And I think they probably still would do now. Of course, they're cautious, you know, they've, um, because of the pandemic. They were always cautious anyway. They, you know, they've, they've never felt they were able to do what City could do and go out and, you know, just spend 50 million on a player as a backup. So they've never done that. But I think it's, I think it's wider than that. And I think if Jürgen complains too much, He's bought into this all the time. You know, he's spoken in public and saying, well, we can't do what City do. We like to do it a different way. So he's bought into this. So I, I, I kind of, there's always going to be tensions between the manager and the recruitment department and the owners, but I don't think it's going to be a huge issue. And anyway, you know, they, the, the owners absolutely love Jürgen. They're enthralled to him. And why wouldn't he be? You know, he's, he's dug them out of a huge hole. He's won them two massive trophies. Mm. And uh, so, no, I don't think it will be. I think the problem is what they should have done is nipped and tucked over the years. And I think, and I don't think it's a full-on rebuild is necessary in the summer, but it's a bigger rebuild that should have been necessary. And they're going to have to back him, pandemic or no. Tony, you mentioned Jurgen Klopp. Uh, he was saying after the Manchester City defeat that the season is now becoming more about qualifying for top four. Uh, I guess a two-pronged question off of that. The first part being, do you agree with the sentiment that the league is lost? And the second part being, are they in for a true battle to qualify for top four? Yeah, I think they are. I think, I think both things are true. Um, and I wrote this um, well, 10 days ago, that you know, the, the, the battle for the league is over. The battle for the top four has begun. And I think, I mean, we're in many ways, we've backslid three years fighting for the top four. And that's emotionally and psychologically that's it's, it's really horrible um and you know it's given the the, the problems we've got in the central defense and the knock-on effect is on the rest of the team it's absolutely um it, it is going to be a battle for the top four and uh i, I think it's disappointing and uh, the sad thing is it will take a huge effort to regain that ground i don't think necessarily everyone's just going to become fit and we're going to um, be title contenders again next year. I think there's a lot of work needs to be done. Tony, uh, you've seen more football than any of us and you've followed this team for, for decades. Um, do you remember a moment in the past where 
uh, a team, uh, you know, they were champions and they had this kind of maybe backslide on, only to kind of rebound again. Is this, is this something new that you're seeing from, from a Liverpool team that's just been champions? No, one of the, well, they weren't champions, but one of the most famous incidents was in 1981 um, when uh, they were European champions that just won the European Cup. And obviously, um, you know, they come into the new season and the first half of the season was catastrophic. Um, they got beat 3-1 by Manchester City on, uh, at Anfield. Mm. And Joe Corrigan, the City goalkeeper, got hit by a wine bottle. It was that ugly. <laughs> Everything was ugly. And between... Granada Television, the local uh, television station, they did a had a show called Kickoff, which thirty uh, minute show, and they, they did it on Liverpool, and they ended it with Frank Sinatra singing "The Party's Over" and fi- wow. pictures of Liverpool players with sad faces on them. Um, between Christmas and New Year, uh, Bob Paisley sacked um, Phil Thompson as captain and put Graham Souness in the position, and then they didn't lose again until they'd won the league. Um, it was truly remarkable. I don't see that second Jordan Anderson here, <laughs> giving no. the captaincy to anyone else is going to work. Um, and I think... But sorry, Tony. Didn't have to... Sorry, Tony, just yeah. on that point, do you think Klopp will have to be ruthless with some of that squad, though? I think he has to be. As well as that, it's an aging squad. There's a lot of players, you know, approaching 30, 29, 30. Um, you know, again, these are, these are things which should have been freshened up you know, not last summer, the summer before, perhaps, and have people in waiting because we don't seem to have a lot of people come through. Obviously, Jota, you know, is, is good. But yeah, I think he's going to be ruthless. Well, the one thing we know about Jürgen is he is tough, he is ruthless. People see him smiling and he's affable and he is his grace. But I can assure you, this is a man who's always up for a fight if he thinks that, you know, you're having a go at him. So yeah, he will be ruthless. And one of, one of the things that the players who've gone there, from other clubs have said that the, the, at first they didn't think that they could live up to his expectations. They really thought they made a bad decision going to Liverpool because he works them physically and emotionally as hard as any manager does. You know, Guardiola does the same at Man City. So yeah, he, he will be he'll be as ruthless as he needs to be. Tony, one of the players who seems like has come under the most criticism this season for Liverpool has been Trent Alexander-Arnold. He's coming off such a, a brilliant season. He's a young player. It seemed like his, he's in his prime or his prime is ahead of him. And, and he's maybe taken a step back. Has criticism of him been fair this year? Yeah, I, it, it, it does because he hasn't played that well. But I think everyone has to remember that he's not really a fullback or a wingback. You know, he's put there because the system worked well for him. And the thing, again, the knock-on effect of losing the central midfielders happens this way. It's a domino effect. Mm-hmm. So you move, you move uh, Fabinho and now Henderson back into the, um, into the defence. One of the things in particular Henderson did is when Trent got forwards, would drop in behind him, cover the space behind him and make sure that he didn't get, he didn't get overrun because everyone's targeted him. City have been targeting him since, since the Champions League quarterfinal at Anfield and before. Everyone thinks they can get at him and there's a simple reason why. 
he can if he's on his own. But when he's going midfield, when you've got that midfield trio of Fabinho, uh, um, uh, Wijnaldum and Henderson, their job is not to be traditional midfielders, get forward and score, get up and down the pitch. Their job is to provide balance and provide protection, which they did. You take them out of the equation and suddenly Trent's out there on an island, on his own. People can run at him. So he's going to look bad. The, the, the next question is, do you leave him out there in this situation or do you have decide going forward there's a different role it might be I mean for example if I've got Thiago in the team I don't think Thiago is going to work in this team in the style they play but going forward it might be that you change the system you rely less on the wing backs getting forward and leaving the space behind them and in that situation what you could do is you could move Trent into midfield and that, but then you'd have to have a full back these are loads of things that Klopp's got to juggle but the one thing is, the team that won the Champions League and won the title, I've never seen a team where if you take one piece out of it, it causes such a ripple effect around the side. And I was a bit shocked, really, because I didn't think it would. Mm-hmm. But it, it has. And, you know, it's the, 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 the midfield that was criti- has been criticised so badly in Henderson, who takes tremendous criticism from a section of the fan base, taking them out of that midfield makes a huge difference. Because, the, because that three-man midfield did the donkey work, they did the unglamorous stuff, and they let Trent and Andy Robbo get forward and do do you know the the superstar stuff and and obviously the front three do their thing now we're seeing with that midfield disrupted you know even more than losing the center of because liverpool are not conceding you know they're getting beat one nil by by burnley they're getting beat one nil by southampton you know they're, they're not conceding conceding they shed loads of goals but what they are is not scoring because the balance has gone completely and while henderson and fabinho both of them have done great at centre half, although you can see at times that they're not natural defenders. But taking them out of the midfield, I mean, one of the things which is so distressing at times, watching them in, you know, in, in many ways, is the fact that you've got the front three of the title winning team in, in, in the team, and you've got the, the, the midfield trio, the title winning team. But, the, you know, Two, two of them, three of them might be in the wrong positions. And when, when that happens, it's, you know, you, you can see that they're, they're much greater than the sum of the parts when they're all in the right places. Before we let you go, Tony, um, Pep Guardiola alluded to this at the weekend. Um, it's, it's not like he didn't enjoy the victory, but he certainly kind of, it was, it was dampened by the fact that there was no crowd in, at Anfield. Uh, there was no crowd for the midweek de- defeat against Brighton. And you wonder... And this is my question to you. You go 1-0 down to Brighton and that crowd starts to rise up and starts to get behind the team. How much of a factor has no fans been in, in this current uh, decline for Liverpool? I think it's a factor, JJ. But, I mean, in the sense that of all the Liverpool teams I've seen over the years, and I've seen a lot of them, you know, I'm going back it's a, you know, too long, you know, going back to the, to the 60s from when yeah. I can remember seeing them. This team is the one that's fed off the crowd most. And there's like a, almost like a circuit forms where the crowd give them energy, they respond to it, and the crowd gets more energised. So, yes, it has had an effect. But 
I don't want to overplay this. I mean, you look at Leeds. Can you imagine what Alan Rhodes would have been like with yeah. them coming up after such a long absence from the Premier League? And they probably would have got an equal boost from it. You know, it's um, I, so I don't want to overplay it. And the, the professionals, they know what they're doing. It, it, you know, I, I did right before the season that the best chance of people winning the league against Liverpool was crowds don't come back all year. But right. I think... Looking back, I've overplayed that as well. Um, you know, they should be doing better. I think even if Anfield was packed with, you know, with rabid, like sort of mad copites everywhere, I think what you'd find is that the dysfunction in this team is so severe at the moment that they couldn't bring themselves up to it. And remember, you know, we all think of the big nights at Anfield. We all think of, of like, you know, the Champions League when the places you come out and you're buzzing and you're like, but let me tell you, I've been to a lot of games there against the Brightons on a Saturday three o'clock kickoff. Yeah. And everyone's a bit, uh, you know what, best fans in the world. Sometimes it doesn't right. seem that way. Wow. Interesting stuff. Tony Evans of The Independent. Thanks so much for joining us. We appreciate it big time. It's a pleasure. Uh, JJ, that was, that was very interesting. I did not want to make this uh, solely a Liverpool podcast, but there were a couple things that he said that just kind of like got my mind thinking uh, right. as he was saying them. The first one being, um, this was really the first time, and maybe I'm just kind of out of the Liverpool loop, but this felt like the first time for me where I've really heard pronounced criticism of Thiago as a, a purchase for Liverpool. Yeah. Um, there's been, there's been stuff on online Twitter saying that he slows things down, that he does things. What he, what he is is a different way of playing in that midfield. And uh, the, a midfield that I told you was like, a, you know, it wasn't a heavy metal football midfield. It was trash metal. And one of the best things about that midfield was its ability to create turnovers. He doesn't do that very well for me. He's not a great tackler. He's a little bit slow. Um, he's a great passer and he's there to, to unlock unlock defenses rather than be what you know Wijnaldum, Henderson and Milner were in that midfield so yeah that's um that criticism is there um and we'll see uh, there's a few people online who are calling him Juan Sebastian wow. Tiago Juan Sebastian Alcantara, Alcantara. yeah uh, which is I think is unfair the other thing that Tony said th to me this is the hardest part of this sport so you've got Liverpool, which, okay, we can talk about them having guys who are now kind of in and around 30. But for the most part, I don't think we look at them necessarily and say it's an old squad. There's not really an obvious player on there that I would mm. say that guy's old, they got to move on from him. The hardest part of the sport is this idea of needing to mess with a good thing. You know, right, normally yeah. you don't mess with a good thing. Liverpool, like the way that this team has clicked – in this system under this manager over the past couple of seasons, you kind of look at them and say, keep this intact. But Tony is almost suggesting the opposite, that they needed to not keep that, that something needed to change no. to ensure that they could continue at this rate. Yeah. He's saying, how, how do you decide who to move on from? Well, yeah, but that's why I, was, I asked him about being ruthless and tough decisions and, and how he talked about and what Shankly or what Paisley did in 81. Um, Fergie did that all the time, Andrew. Like there was like four year, five year cycles and then he would change the team. And that was a, a dominant Man United side. I don't believe, uh, we've seen with Manchester City, we've seen the most expensive project in world football and we've seen that their dominance can't go past two or three seasons. You know, I mean, no, maybe if Liverpool weren't in the state they were, City would be champions and we'd be talking about like them going for five in a row or whatever. But, but the point being is, I don't think dominance lasts that long. 
So you're right. It's this knife edge. Who should we move on? I know. I mean, for example, there's lots of Liverpool fans, even though he's, you know, he's going to be that player in his early 30s. They don't want to see Wijnaldum go because they don't know who we replace him with. Mm-hmm. It's, it's really, really tricky. Um, yeah, it's, uh, it's, it's one of those things where I think, you know, you're not going to get it right every time. And sometimes you have to take the risk at, at, to avoid like kind of stasis and to avoid stagnation, you have to take a risk and well, move players on. With the little bits we've heard about Mo Salah possibly having his head turned towards playing in other leagues and him maybe being the best player on this team right now, maybe he's the guy who they can just get. He's the one who maybe they can get the most sum of money for. And uh, maybe that Jota then maybe can work his way in into a front three. Yeah. I don't know. It's very interesting. Uh, all right. We've got a couple others here, JJ, for red card. The second one is Liverpool's rival. Manchester United, I would not have thought that we would be presenting them with a red card just days after a 9-0 victory. Yeah. But the nature of their 3-3 draw following the 9-0, um, I felt well, like it needed to be, it needed to be mentioned and, and not in a good way for them. Right. Well, it's, it's, it's this moment where they can go top or joint top or, or really put the pressure on Manchester City. They had that moment against Sheffield United where they could have gone top and they lose at home to Sheffield United. Mm-hmm. And it's another poor home performance where they're 2-0 up against Everton at halftime, and they end up tying the game, drawing the game 3-3 with a last-minute goal by Dominic Calvert-Lewin. Um, after the game, Solskjaer said, we're not talking about winning titles. We have come a long way, this team. We should not even be considered as title chasers. That is more talk that you, the media, are saying. It's, well, no. it's, like, it's like he spoke it into existence. <laughs> like, like everyone was believing that they could do it except the manager. And like now he's pounding his chest that he was right. Yeah, I got this right. And we're fat and ugly and stupid. <laughs> yeah, it was, um, it was bad. It, 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 was, it, was, it was United in a nutshell, really. There was brilliance from key individuals. Like the Cavani goal, the movement for the header where he completely loses Michael Keane and, and nods it home and the great ball from Rashford. And then there's the Bruno Fernandes goal where... In one, in, in one passage of play, he fakes to kick the ball nonchalantly. It goes back out. It comes into him. Now, he gets all the time in the world afforded to him by Tom Davies, but it doesn't matter. He decides he's going to score. Like, this is such a key player that he is. He just, I'm going to hit this. And he whips it into the top corner. And then, and then you think, ah, oh, United, with a player like him, you know, with Rashford, they're, they're capable of so much. But they've got this shaky defending. They've got their goalkeeper Pamming the equalizer to Decore. Mm-hmm. Um, now, I will say that the Hamas Rodriguez equalizer at 2 2 was a brilliant goal. Okay, it, it was a brilliant goal, and again, great play by Decore. But at the same time, you know, they give up the equalizer, they go ahead from McTominay, and that should be that. Like, Everton weren't that big of an attacking threat, they just weren't. And then there's about, I think, 10 minutes left, and Maguire trips over his feet. And Dominic Calvert-Lewin is in. And Maguire's there looking for a, you know, he's got the slightest contact from, from Dominic Calvert-Lewin. He's looking for a free kick. He gets away with it. But you know it's happening again. You just know it. And they concede a free kick. They defend just too deep. They fall back. And uh, Calvert-Lewin takes his goal well. But, I mean, this is rinse and repeat with this United side. It's um, every time they've steered the opportunity to rejoin the elite of English football and be in a title chase, they've, they've passed up on it. 
I know. And they've done so in unbelievable fashion. Like you said, losing to Sheffield United when Sheffield United were in that state. And then this game with Everton, I don't want this to sound too harsh on Everton, but it it felt a little bit like they had four chances all game and they scored on three of them. The fourth one being the one right before the half that Calvert-Lewin just put wide of the post. Right, right. And again, Andrew, look at that. (laughs) All of a sudden, there's just Lindelof and there's... Moses parts the Red Sea for Dominic Calvert-Lewin. I don't understand what's going on there. You know, United were just, they were just, they haven't changed enough for me. They're just yeah. capable of these things all the time. And it's, it's about individuals. It's about really good players. But it's also about, like, they're not cohesive as a defensive unit. And it's hard to believe the money they've spent, like $40 million on Lindelof out of the World Cup, and then making Maguire the record, world record transfer for a defender, one of the most expensive players in the world. And, and you look at it, Andrew, and what are you saying to yourself? I probably have to get another centre-back in the summer. <laughs> And unfortunately for them, you look at, you know, they do have, they're fun in attack. They have good creating, yeah. uh, creative attacking players, but they're going to be without Pogba now for at least a few weeks after yeah. he went down with an injury, which is not Odd. helpful. Uh, and before we move off of United, I know we were talking about Allison before with Liverpool. You mentioned De Gea, um, the goal that he allowed. Part of me felt a little bit bad for him because I did feel that his defense put him in somewhat of a bad position. Like, I don't, I've watched, I rewatched the highlight of that goal several times because I was trying to think, okay, if I were De Gea, what would I do here? And I'll be honest, I think a you lot catch of, it. well, that, but I think where that ball was played, it's not, we're asking him, if he catches it, it's a great catch. He's making a great play. I, 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 Andrew, I don't think there was that much juice on it. I don't think it was hit I, that firmly. I, I guess you're right. And I think most people would agree, but I just watched it so many times and I, I kind of came away from it thinking, that the defense put him in a spot where a lot of good goalkeepers would have been made to look foolish there. But that aside, they are one of the few teams in this league that appears to have a very capable backup, a guy who would start for most other clubs. Are they going to pull that trigger? Is that like, are they ready to make a move? I feel like this has been talked about for a couple of years now, and, and maybe now they have the guy where they feel like they can. I wonder. I wonder if Solskjaer entirely convinced by Henderson because surely he would have made that move earlier. I mean, this is not the first time, even this season, that we've seen De Gea kind of cause problems for the team. I, I wonder if he, if he looks at Henderson, maybe he looks at Henderson's distribution. Maybe he doesn't fancy that. I don't maybe. know. That's possible. I'm um, not sure. With United, before we move off of them, you can't say that it's been unlucky. Uh, they've conceded the ninth most goals, which, okay, that, that doesn't always tell the whole story but their expected goals is ninth worst as well. So they're kind of, I don't think there's any, any surprises right now um, with what's gone wrong for them. Um, it's, it's their defense. And that, like you said, with, with the resources they put into that, that's, that's disappointing. Um, and one more red card here, JJ, and it's, it's fitting that it would be a red card. Uh, and it's, it's Mike Dean, but I, I feel a little bit uncomfortable with that. It's kind of more the Mike Dean situation from yeah, multiple I- fronts. I actually think that this, this is a red card that has moved on from when you probably initially typed this up and has become more of a, you know, not so much about the Thomas Suchek incident, but rather about the reaction to the incident by some people. Yeah, well, yes, that because, and that is kind of what I had in mind when I typed it up because, okay, let, let's talk about the red card that he gave to Suchek. Now, uh, it was wrong. And that wrong had, was quickly righted. The red card was overturned. Suchek will not be suspended. And it's kind of, in the end, it's kind of a no harm, no foul situation. West Ham didn't lose because of it. Um, and so with that being the case, like the reaction that we are now getting 
uh, on social media to to incidents that like like I said, if this had led to a penalty, there's no there's no example, there's no situation where it would have been warranted. Um, but like nothing, so the red card was given and the game ended. Like that was the, that was it. And the like tidal wave of abuse, um, threats to him, death threats to him, to his family. Like where you just you just wonder with stuff like this, you know, where we are as a society that people are just so quick to just push that button of you made me upset about something in a game. And so now I'm going to kill you. Like it's just yeah. disconnect mentally that society has, has undergone. And it's, I don't know how we put the milk back in the udder. Like the, the medium of social media is just like, it's so easy for people to do this anonymously and in the heat of, of some moment of, of rage. And I don't, I don't know. I don't know how we turn this around and, and have incidents like this stop happening. Well, uh, Sky Sports had tweeted out that Mike Dean has asked not to officiate a Premier League game this weekend after the abuse he's received. Um, but Daniel Story wrote a piece last week, Andrew. I'm just going to quote from this. Um, and I thought it makes a lot of sense. Um, according to the BBC... Southampton asked that Lee Mason and Mike Dean, the officials for their last two defeats, be taken off match duties involving their club. It is a lamentable, miserable thing to do, not least because it plays into the paranoia complex some fans now have as their natural state. It's a great like, point. There is a, there is a responsibility on football clubs here as well. Um, you wouldn't believe, you would believe actually, the amount of time I, I spend a lot of time on Twitter, you, Andrew, Twitter is awash with these ninnies who think there is a cabal of referees plotting against their team, and they've got the screen grabs and they've got the the evidence to prove it. And now we're seeing this kind of um, conspiracy theory stuff thrive in other areas of 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 life, uh, certainly in this country, but. Um, don't think that uh, football is not immune from it. And when a football club like, South, like Southampton, you know, takes this kind of, according to the BBC, I should say, takes this kind of step, that only fuels the paranoia. Mm -hmm. You know, I hate blaming social media for everything, but I'm going to, <laughs> especially in football. It has weaponized these nincompoops who live their lives um, as it, like it's a zero-sum game when, when their team wins, every other team loses. Oh, they love making fun of the banter club. And one of the things that they latch onto is referees and officials and live var pool and all this kind of stuff and nonsense. And it coagulates. I mean, we've got some of them who are listeners ourselves. Sometimes I have interactions with them. I'm like, what are you talking about? You don't really believe this stuff. You can't. Um, yeah, it's it's... It, it, there's, on social media, there's been a death of nuance, but there's also the death of reason. And, um, yes. and we're in a bad place with this when, when a referee, Mike Dean got it wrong, very badly wrong, and then VAR got it wrong. But honestly, Andrew, I feel VAR as a whole concept was a kind of a, in, in one part at least, was a concession to the mob. Bringing in VAR in England was in part a concession to the mob who were convinced in their own minds about these cabals of referees and about and that there was horrific injustices in the football sense happening in every game. And it's just not true. 
because there was mistakes happening and they're still happening. So look, in terms of VAR, you can have your opinion. I don't want you to lump in with that, that people wanted it because they thought of these cabals of referees and no, 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 that, no, no. That was not why VAR was implemented. It was because mistakes were being made and there was a media, there no, was, no, no, no. Technology not, that could be used to fix it. No, it was not because on, of Andrew, conspiracy theories. The outrage machine that is generated on social media had a part to play in it. It, it absolutely did. Yeah. With social media, I, I don't want to be a spokesperson for social media because you know, as much as anyone, how much I despise it. And, and I, <laughs> try not to use it at all costs. However, uh, sometimes I feel like we scapegoat say, social media as, as the reason here. Now, social media is the messenger. It's what's used for the message to be, to be spread, mm. and it's empowered people in a way to do it. However, let's not lose sight of the real problem here, and that is people. Andrew. People, it did, social media didn't need to go this way. It didn't need to be this hateful. Uh, and it didn't need to be used in this kind of method that it's being used and weaponized in the way that it's being weaponized. People are making the decisions to do that. Okay. But I believe it's the incubator. That's the point. Um, Dermot Gallagher, who a former Premier League referee, uh, who has like a weekly column at Sky Sports where he goes through different rulings and, and referee-related issues, he said this about um, the abuse that Mike Dean has taken. He said, when I was refereeing, I took stick in games or coming to the car park afterwards, but when you went home, that was the end of it. Unfortunately, now we have social media, and it goes on and on and on, creating avenues like this, which are very distasteful. And like this is stuff that you know we people talk about in their homes that, that have kids. This, this is like high school bullying. Like sometimes yeah. kids would get bullied in the past and at least they could go home and there was an escape from it. But like with social media, it follows them home and it's, you know, they can't get away from it. And it's, it's affecting a generation of, of kids. And you see, it's not, it's not limited to just that part of society. You've got players who, who go home and click on their social media and there's racist abuse there. And you've got referees who are getting death threats. It's just, God, just what are we, what are we doing as a, as a people, as a society? No, I agree with you. It's grim. All right. Let's go from that to, to less grim. Those were our red cards, Liverpool, Manchester United, and the Mike Dean situation. Let's go now, JJ, man of the match. Hopefully these will, this will brighten some spirits. Let's start with, um, with MLS. We will have a season. Huzzah. This was was not always guaranteed. You and I, as, as late as a, a few weeks ago, had said that we kind of were getting a bad feeling about where this was headed, but um, the league and the player association has agreed to a new seven year collective bargaining uh, agreement. So that is good news for the fans. Um, but I mean, I don't know how deep we want to go into. Well, can I, this. can I give, can I give you a, what I feel is the takeaway if I was to put it into one kind of sentence about what's being agreed here and you tell me if you agree or disagree or, or what your thoughts are. Yep. Um, short-term gain for the players, long-term concessions to the owners. That's what it was all about. Yes. Yep. And, and in some ways I feel for the players because in the end here, the likely, uh, I, look, ultimately to a certain extent, everybody wins in this one because the players in the midst of a pandemic are going to get their full salaries uh, with bonuses, they will not be affected in any way in ter- with those payments. And the owners win because they were willing to do that if it meant that they could like, get one over on the players later on uh, in this deal, in, in this, the, the final years of this uh, agreement between the two. So 
they both win, but in the end, the owners are probably the bigger winners. And I, I, you know, it's, it's just like one of those classic wealth gaps between the two where the owners have so much money, you know, these, these billionaire owners have so much money that like, they can make it sound like they're making some big concession to the players by allowing them to have their full salaries now. But how much of a concession is it really? In the end, what they'll make at the back end of this is, is probably far greater than whatever perceived losses they have on the front end. And, you know, I feel bad for the players to a certain extent because they kind of, they're coming from no position of power in this. Like they had to agree to that. There are players, a, a huge portion of the league is making 80,000 or less. Yeah. You know? So it's like these guys, like they need the money. They, they couldn't afford any other avenues. And, and, the owners, I'm sure, knew that and knew that there was a sense of desperation and probably was going to be potentially a break within the ranks of the players' union and the players were going to have to agree to that. Uh, and the owners, I'm sure, in, as a negotiation tactic, probably held that over them to a certain extent. I mean, uh, this is essentially the for, – for all the back and forth that we thought was happening, this is essentially the deal the owners wanted all along. So, you know, we've, we've got here slowly. The players ultimately in the long term will lose out, but we will have a season. So, right. And that's why it's good. And, uh, you know, that, and not only that, but we're hopefully, unless the force majeure clause is going to have to be invoked again next year, we, this, this will probably be the last you hear of any kind of negotiations between the two for seven years. Uh, so again, that's, that's good. That's what we want. You want labor peace. You don't want to hear about millionaires bickering with billionaires. It's ugly and distasteful and it's not what fans really want to be um, subjected to. It, it was a strange thing over the last few days, Andrew, um, to, to hear about FC Cincinnati spending millions on what's potentially going to be, you know, one of these great prospects from South America that's going to come to MLS and possibly be sold on for even tens of millions uh, to a European club down the line. And then you hear the, the owners crying poverty. It's not a good right. look. And you're, meanwhile, you're seeing the images of like Austin's new stadium and just yeah. like incredible, beautiful, which is great. Like that's, that's great, but you're right. You know, you have, these guys have a lot of money. Like it's, you're going to probably be okay. Um, in the athletic, I saw Paul Tenorio and Sam Stayskill. Uh, they wrote about this. They said the deal was a win for the owners who were on the offensive from the moment they invoked the force majeure clause they fought to insert to the CBA last June. Helped along by their threat of a lockout that would have suspended pay for players in the midst of the pandemic, the owners extended the CBA for two additional years through 2027. The CBA has already been extended one year during negotiations last June. The new deal will push future CBA negotiations to more than a year after the World Cup that will be co-hosted by the U.S., Canada, and Mexico in 2026. That event is expected to be a major driver of revenue and growth for soccer in the U.S. and Canada. That is not a coincidence. Uh, <laughs> that is just simply not a coincidence. But nope. again, I, I'm not trying to sound like you know the skeptic here or whatever. In in the end, we're fans. We love MLS. This means we will have a season. Uh, so this is good. This is a, a good thing. And it means we don't have to talk about the technicalities of CBA anymore. We can just get on to talking about, uh, well, talking about preseason, really. I mean, if you want, we can go deep on TAM. TAM, GAM, and all the rest of it. No, thank I you. The, I know the people do love those conversations. Uh, all right, next one, JJ. We kind of danced around this when we were talking about Liverpool, but we should go deeper on specifically Manchester City, the team that uh, leveled Liverpool over the weekend 4-1. So I had said with regards to uh, – to Manchester City, the, the the Liverpool game was the one that I needed to see, I guess, yeah. before I kind of anointed 
uh, whether you were, or not Liverpool were out of it, whether or not this was cities to lose. Well, I have seen, and it is now very much their league to lose. You are no longer doubting St. Thomas. You are a believer in Josep Guardiola. Yeah, um, I, I did Real a quick, little... I'm sorry to cut you off, but you mentioning him, it's just like, remember the conversations like three months ago, four months yeah. ago? In many people's minds, it was over for him. Like, yeah. it was time for him to move on. We were talking about him going back to, like, Barcelona. And there, was, there was talk about, you know, that the players have got tired of his message. Uh, yeah, they're, they're worn out. And if, if, if anything, they did the right thing. They started slowly. They conserved energy. <laughs> they somehow uh, reinvigorated John Stones and made a partnership of, of, of steel, a pact of steel between Stones and... Uh, and Diash at the back, and all of a sudden they are a uh, they are a monster team again. And they are look. I think depth has a lot to do with it. Nobody's mentioning a a certain player right now, uh, Kevin De Bruyne, and you know that was the big worry going in. Oh, they don't have De Bruyne anymore. Well, they have Ilkay Gundogan, who is uh, single-handedly accumulated more XG than any Premier League team this game week, apart from Man City, of course. Obviously, that's from the XG philosophy. So um, this, is a, this is a monster team that are rolling again, Andrew. It's incredible. You're right. I mean, you mentioned De Bruyne, but like, that's the thing is Gundogan is scoring these goals. Uh, they're, they're essentially playing without a true striker. Like Gabriel mm. Jesus, for whatever reason, still doesn't, I guess, seem to have the full trust of the manager. Aguero hasn't started since October. Like you said, De Bruyne is out, and yet yeah. – 10 straight wins in the league, 14 straight overall. And it's not like they're doing it with one nils. I mean, they're, they're scoring goals. Phil Foden has, you know, he was the player that Pep mentioned when De Bruyne went out. You know, Phil has to be Phil. He doesn't have to try to be the next De Bruyne. Well, he's being Phil and it's, it's working for him because he I, was excellent over the weekend. I thought in the second half in particular, Foden and, and Sterling ran riot and it was it was too much for Robertson and Trent Alexander-Arnold, respectively, to deal with. Uh, particularly if you look at the first goal, where Sterling is just... I mean, it's not the greatest effort at defending in the world from Trent Alexander-Arnold. Well, Tony, Tony saw, said that Trent can't be on an island with players, and Raheem no. Sterling is certainly probably like the ultimate player that even the, the best defenders don't want to be on an island with. Correct. I, I wrote down a few of the things that I really liked about City, though. Um, when Liverpool equalized after the Diaz mistake and then the concession of a penalty, they didn't fall apart like they have often done at Anfield. One of the big things Pep used to say was, you know, if, if, if we have a setback or they score a goal, it can't mean that there's two and three goals afterwards. And that just didn't happen this time. Um, their transition to defence, how many times did you see Liverpool break, albeit not as quickly as in previous um, iterations of the team but City were not there was no gaps players were flooding back you know City defended really well and they they also realized something that I don't think maybe the early part of of the Guardiola City sides realized was that um, you know you don't have to go out and win every game like City were content to keep the ball catch Liverpool on the break play good football on the break it didn't have to be all gung-ho and leave gaps in behind um uh, I thought Foden Sterling, Bernardo Silva's ball for, um, I know, look, I know Alisson has teed it up. I'm aware of that. But Bernardo Silva's center for Sterling was a really yeah. nice little chip. It was a really nice dink to the far post. Um, I, I, I really enjoyed it as I 
try to wipe away my tears. I was going to say you, you enjoyed it. Really? I don't know. I didn't enjoy any of this, but I, I am, if nothing, I'm not a professional Andrew. So, you know, um, I've, always, I've always said that about you to anyone. Yeah. You've asked. always said I'm not a professional, <laughs> <laughs> but you are right though, in that goalkeepers do make mistakes all the time. And they, um, and they, they don't usually make three in a row deliberately. Well, no, deliberately. I'm joking. <laughs> like he threw I'm the joking. game. No, of but, like course I'm say, but what I'm saying though is, you know, goalkeepers make mistakes, defense, you know, players in defense make mistakes, but it does take a, a talented team to immediately make you regret and, and make you pay. For absolutely. The, absolutely. And Man City are, they're in that mode right now where if you make a mistake against them, you're going to get bit. Uh, and they are, they're certainly doing that because, yeah, I guess it's this idea too, like Manchester city, I'm just to kind of go back to the Liverpool thought process on this. So like clearly Allison is in this moment where his confidence is, his, is not at a good place. Um, Manchester city's confidence, meanwhile, is in a great place. And yet this continued need to play out from the back at a certain point, like, <laughs> you after you, you got away with the first mistake like let's just like let's just go long one deep and live to see another moment here i mean it, and, and and this is a you know that's a goalkeeper that's capable of of finding players down the field with a, with a long ball now Klopp Klopp said that he didn't feel the uh the angles were there i would give city credit for closing down the angles um but at the same time and Klopp said something about cold feet which i i, I haven't been able to kind of um, parse through or understand, but I, I, I give City credit for doing the kind of thing that Liverpool did to them for so long. One mistake, one goal, one turnover turns into like a collapse. Mm-hmm. That's what Liverpool did to City, and now City did it to them. So it's uh, you got to give them praise and credit for that. Yeah, and and I know when we were speaking with Tony Evans before from the Independent, you know, he talked about the need for Liverpool to have freshened the squad up at some point. And perhaps that's a criticism at, at times that Manchester City have come under. However, I will say this. Uh, when they do choose to spend, they do so obviously in, in huge dramatic sums, but not necessarily in like the freewheeling manner that we sometimes accuse PSG of, where PSG, we're just going to load up on strikers. Like, you know, Manchester City do a good job of identifying the places where they need freshening. And then they go out and they get the best one they can. Like they, they needed a center half. We all knew that. They went out, they got Ruben Diaz, who I know this is a weird moment to say it because he had the penalty, but overall he's been excellent this season. He's been one of the best signings of the year at that position. Like they recognize the increasing importance of attacking fullbacks in this league. Look at what Liverpool have done. They've set the example. They went out, Jao Cancelo has been great. Uh, they saw Fernandinho getting up there in age. Last year they go out and they get Rodri, who now looks like he's coming good as one of the better defensive midfielders and and it's going to be interesting to see what happens next with them because it now seems like striker is one of those positions that they've been able to kind of ignore for almost a decade between with, with really Aguero just having the stranglehold on that position Jesus has been given a chance but it looks like he may not necessarily be the guy so now they've like finally now they have this glamour position uh that it looks like they're going to need freshening and and it's going to be very interesting to see what they decide to do there because uh, if they fi- if they flex their financial might go ahead and, and, you know, pick the most exciting striker out there in world football right now. That player could be lining up for City next year. What's going to be interesting is when the Champions League kicks in again and it's they're, they're, going, they're going on full steam in the Premier League and the Champions League is, you know, they've got a favorable tie against Mönchengladbach. I, I, the season has turned on its head for, for the citizens. 
Yeah. Yeah, it really has. Uh, all right. One more, JJ. Okay. Ready for this? Yeah, I am. Well, I'm not really. No, you're not. This, I've paid no attention to this tournament this, this year. <laughs> no, no, I'm sure you haven't. Uh, and that is the FIFA Club World Cup. That's right. CONCACAF will have its moment. Tigres, who defeated LAFC, of course, in the CONCACAF Champions League, uh, they won in the semifinals. They will now face Bayern Munich in the Club World Cup final. And that is right, JJ. Tigres will be the first CONCACAF side ever to play for this title. It's going to be on Thursday. Seems crazy, doesn't it? Because, um, you know, there's been good teams out of Mexico. I'm not expecting... Yeah, it's, it, uh, even, even the first iteration of this tournament, I remember Nicaxa being in there. Uh, and, and obviously it was uh, Gignac who scored the winner on a penalty. Um, seems fitting with his performance to have gotten Tigres to this point. Uh, so yeah, Bayern Munich and CONCACAF's own Tigres. So I guess I, I need help here. Right. As an American fan, and I'm sure there are others like me, do you root for CONCACAF or does the U.S. slash MLS rivalry with Mexican football, does that supersede all and I root for Bayern to just pace them. Well, knowing you and your sporting hatred of, of the Mexican national team, I presume that you will be going for Bayern Munich to do just that, to give them a good old pasting. But I, I honestly think that if you want to enjoy this and back a CONCACAF side and make, your, make yourself feel good about this region and its soccer, that's fine too, because they are a club side. They may be representing, the, uh, you know, as Mexican champions, but I think, I think you're safe enough in supporting uh, Tigres. There's going to so, be huge viewer, U.S. viewership of this game. Yeah. So it may surprise you to hear this, but right now we're still a few days away from the game, and I, maybe I won't know until they actually start playing. But my gut right now is kind of saying to root for Tigres. And, and it's I weird. That's, that's okay. That's strange for me because, like, I was trying to apply the logic – of that in other sports. Like I wouldn't, as an Eagles fan, I would never root for another NFC East team to win a Super Bowl. Like when the Giants, even as much as I hate the Patriots, when the Giants were in the Super Bowl against the Patriots, I may as well have been wearing a Tom Brady Jersey. <laughs> I was rooting that hard for the Giants. <laughs> but like, that's a divisional when, when, rivalry. Like when Syracuse, when they were in the big East, like the old big East and UConn were playing for national championships, I was rooting so hard for UConn to lose. Like, so it's not usually, that's not usually the direction I go. I'm very, like, my appreciation of rivalries, like, it extends well beyond when my team is actually involved. I guess the difference here is that, like, this is about respect for the region. You know, because I am very Regional much, respect. I am very much the insecure American soccer fan. Uh, I, I ooze insecurity. Um, so I guess and, anything that helps raise the profile of the sport in this part of the world, it, it serves this kind of like greater good for, for soccer fans in this region. So, you know, even though I don't necessarily love the way that like that message would be spread with, uh, with Tigres winning, I think, I think it's the way to go. I think you root for them. I, I think you're right too. And uh, I'm rooting for, um, I'm rooting for Gignac because like Geniac is the kind of player that you look back at his at his career. Obviously, obviously this didn't happen, but you say, "Oh, he was on loan at Bayern Munich and it didn't work out, and now he's a journeyman. He's ended up at, in Mexico." And I I would just love for for him to to put in this amazing performance. Then he gets an offer from somebody in Europe. He comes back and he has this this uh, this wonderful finish to his career. He ends up back in the French squad. I want all those things to happen. Uh, well, he's. 
he's 35. Yeah. I mean, is that realistic? The, this scenario that you're painting for him? Oh, no, like, no. Look at oh. the depth of the French squad. Look at, look at, no, none <laughs> of it is. But, but the, Andrew, uh, realism and what JJ wants don't always go hand in hand. By the way, you say he's a journeyman. I mean, not anymore. No, he's, he's, he's been settled in, there like, 2015. Yeah. yeah. Um, by the way, while we're talking about this, I, I did want to mention that the CONCACAF Champions League has once again decided to change formats. Uh, <laughs> I know you've been worried about this. Uh, Concerned. Just the, the quick bullet points, because I like to think that this, this podcast, it, it, it entertains, but we teach. It's important that we teach people. Um, this will start in 2023, late in 2023. So I guess the regular CONCACAF Champions League will finish out in spring of 2023, and then this will start up later. There will be a group stage. That's right. It's back. Um, and it's going to be split up by region. There will be a North American region, a Central American, and a Caribbean. Uh, North American region will be made up of 20 teams from the U.S., Canada, and Mexico. Four groups, five teams each. The top two will advance. Three others will, pl- um, will advance from a play-in round. Um, now, just it's important to note, I said five teams in a group, but you're only going to play four group stage matches, two home, okay. two away, unbalanced. So it's an unbalanced schedule. Just know that going in. 11 teams from North American from that region will qualify for the knockout round, four from Central America and one from uh, the Caribbean. Um, so we know what this means. Like we, th- This, I guess, is like the way we've talked about how can MLS and Liga MX teams play more games against each other? What is that going to look like? Will, this, will there be some kind of joint league? Well, this group stage and increasing uh, potentially the number of, of MLS Liga MX teams that make the knockout stage. Like this, uh, for now, this is it. Like if this is what we've been waiting for in regards to more MLS and Liga MX matches against one another, then I'm good with that. Yeah, this is the precursor to the merger that will eventually <laughs> Hopefully happen. Hopefully this is it. Maybe this is the merger. Don't know. What do you know? If this is successful... Um, you're right, it may stave off. If, if this is successful enough, this may stave off a larger expansion. But we know how these things are going, and we know the sounds that have been made, Andrew. The, uh, the powers that be north of the border really want that, that, those Mexican uh, TV ratings. Well, look, the, the fact that they regionalized the group stages to make sure that MLS and Liga MX teams were together, like that's going to be a lot of games against one another. So yep. you know, maybe, this, maybe this will satiate whatever desire it is to have those these leagues playing more against one another. All right. Um, we're going to close with a mailbag. Is that right? Yes, we are. We've got a brief mailbag. Um, thanks to everyone who joined us at caught offside ESPN on Instagram for our Friday Instagram chat, where it's a freewheeling kind of discussion. It's kind of like the view, but just me. And the only view is my head and I cough a lot sometimes, but we have good chats. And um, so I want to extend the invite Friday, 4 p.m. Eastern, join me. And uh, maybe the week after that, we can have Andrew join us. I was going to ask you, so when, when do you work exactly? What are your hours? Does your boss not care that you're in your office just like on Instagram conducting a Q&A about soccer? Like, how, how do you still have a job? It's, it's worrying. That's none of your concern. Okay. <laughs> Fridays, 4 p.m. Instagram. <laughs> Um, caught offside ESPN. Follow us on Instagram there at CO Soccer Pod. This is uh, the usual place where we release the pod tweet. When you see it, hammer the retweet button so we can get it out to more people. And uh, caught offside pod at gmail.com is where Shad Larson contacted us. Shad, I like that. S H A D, Shad. Mm. Nice. 
Shade. Reminds me of the singer. Very sensual singer from the 80s. Um, hey, JJ and Andrew, just wondering if the situation at Marseille, where they fire their coach, Andre Villas-Boas, who was, tr- they didn't fire him. He was, uh, he was trying to fire himself. He was desperate to leave. Who was trying to resign is the closest thing we will ever get to Michael Scott firing Anthony Gardner in the office while he was trying to quit making the company pay him severance. I find it quite bizarre, but love it when we can relate anything from the office to real life. Love the pod. Keep up the great work. Thanks, Shad. You, I'll, as the resident uh, office US uh, guy, you can explain that one. It's one of the most uncomfortable scenes. That's a show that prides itself on uncomfortable scenes. It's right. up there. It's up there with, with the worst of them. He's this right. huge man. He's just been brought over. The mer- they're merging the Stanford branch and the Scranton branch. Michael Scott is trying to be like this father figure to all like the new people coming in. He's got these dumb exercises group work planned right. for like integrating everybody together. And it's going horribly. And so finally, he's, Michael's trying to push this 400 pound man on top onto a table for some kind of dumb activity and the guy freaks out you know he's he's he loses it i i can't do this anymore it's it's your management style this isn't right i think i need to quit and michael says well you're fired (laughs) the guy's everybody's like wait what no that's right we can't have losers like you here you're fired and then now he turns it and tries to make an example of him and so then later on michael has to explain to his boss why that they now need to pay severance to somebody who was about to quit on their own dime. Um, oh, good God. So yeah. It's also like the movie waiting. If you ever seen that when, uh, David Koechner is the boss no. of this like TGI Fridays type restaurant. Oh, and this guy is going to quit. Uh, Justin long is going to quit. And then David Koechner says, well, you're fired. Get out of my sight. Like it's just <laughs> like, <laughs> it's like that too. Yeah. Um, Speaking of uh, Steve Carell, uh, all things related. I watched irresistible, uh, last night, the, uh, the film about where they go to, uh, Steve Carell is kind of a democratic organ, a democratic kind of spin doctor or a campaign manager, and he goes to uh, Wisconsin to uh, get a uh, retired colonel to run for the mayor in that town as a kind of a, a a representation of a new democratic party. It was actually it was kind of funny. It, oh, really? It was inter- It was very interesting. Um, I give it a watch as well, and um, I'm also going to watch the Britney Spears documentary tonight. Okay. I think that's right. on Hulu. I'm hearing a lot of good things about that. Interesting. While we're doing this, I should say I watched uh, the trial of the Chicago Seven over the weekend on Netflix. Oh yes, I thought it was excellent. Oh wow! Great, great movie. Really, really, give it a big recommendation. Good. I think I'll put that on the list for uh, yeah. the weekend. Then you'll like. You're big on like modern American history and all that. You'll really, mm. you'll really like it. I think. Ahmed contacts us with uh, a very nice video that I sent to you as well, Andrew. I hope you I watched it. it. I did. Yeah. Um, hey guys, thought you might find this funny. I have a pretty large family, and most of the cousins and uncles keep up with the Premier League and sport different teams. So it was my little brother's seventh birthday the other day and he wanted to choose his team. So we had a selection day. I went to a soccer store to buy something to represent each team a family member supports and they had every sticker of the top Premier League teams, but nothing for United. So I just grabbed the hat in my car. I'm the only United fan in my family since that was my grandfather's team and we would watch games together growing up. Here's the video. Guess what happens, Andrew? He grabs, he grabs the United hat. It's actually really nice. The whole family, Ahmed's, all their family are there. And there's this little kid who was just like super excited. And they, he's got they like, almost made it into like a press conference. Yeah. It was almost like a selection. You know, when the, when a kid is committing to a college and he right. chooses like the, the Hoosiers hat, puts it on then signs his uh, declaration papers. Yeah. Um, yeah. It was really, really nice. Uh, thanks for sharing that Ahmed. And the kid is so cute and excited. 
about it. Um, he's so just full of life. Uh, yeah, great time nice. to be, yeah, great time to be a United fan. Anyway, um, and then Connor Rickard, uh, finally, he goes, <laughs> can we not do an in the club with Southampton anymore? <laughs> so, um, so we should, we, this is a good way to finish the podcast, I think, with the, uh, you know, the Yankowitz sending off that descended into a 9-0 battering last week. And Southampton have now had consecutive 9-0 thumpings uh, in in uh, sorry, they've had nine nil thumpings in in consecutive seasons, which is horrifying. I don't know how to explain it, especially because they're like a in the grand team. scheme of things, they're a good team. Yeah. Like it's so weird. They have a manager that we that we like that we th- assume the Highly club regarded. likes. Like how I don't know how you can like he's he he will and should survive it as as their manager, but like there's also this part of me that's like how can you though. How can you allow that to happen back-to-back seasons? It's the, the initial red card, I texted you right away. It's, it's, it's one I, of the worst said, tackles I've ever seen. I said, 76 seconds. I said to you, I texted you, I said, a horrifying challenge just happened. A red card has just occurred. This should make for a, a fascinating next 89 minutes of this game. Little did I know what that actually was going to look like. Like, ha- have some, I know you're down a man and United are good, but – like have some pride. You just have to be better than that. And then they followed up with a loss to Newcastle. Granted, Newcastle played genuinely good, I thought. Yeah. Um, but like, is that now five straight losses for Southampton? Yeah. Oh, terrible. Since what they hell? beat since they beat the champions, they have just fallen off. And I wonder because Southampton are a pressing machine. And I wonder if. Uh, when they lost Yankowitz, that one key cog was gone and then everything falls apart because you see Danny Ings trying to track back. I'm sorry, it can't fall apart like that. I know it can't. I'm trying to make excuses here, but you see Danny Ings tracking back with uh, Wan-Bissaka for like the second goal and I'm like, oh, this is going to, if this is the case, if this is what's going to happen, this is going to be a long, long day for them. Um, Oh, one final thing. Atleti dropped points at the weekend in La Liga. 2-2 draw against Celta Vigo. So the, the lead over Barcelona is now down to um, down to eight points. So I just keep an eye on it. A lot of people had proclaimed it done, but just keep an eye on it. That's all I got to say. Oh, and uh, one more thing. On uh, my Twitter, at JJ Devaney, I'm going to, um, in honor of Jurgen Klopp getting very testy with an Israeli journalist, unnecessarily so. So I didn't um, actually see this. Oh, you didn't? He just no. chews him out. He goes, you had two... Qu- he, the Israeli journalist just asked, you know, is the, is the title over now and is, is, is the concentration on top four? And he goes, well, you had, you had two questions and you wasted them both. You wasted them on this. I mean, this is obvious. And he, he just gets really unnecessarily angry. And a lot of people were like, oh, Klopp, no respect, sore loser, all this stuff. Well, I'm doing a thread of manager meltdowns in interviews. Um, so I'm going to do that later today. Um, and and there's been so much worse. Uh, the 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 recently departed Jim McLean, manager of Dundee, attacked a journalist on TV. So, all right, that's it. Like physically? Yeah, physically assaulted him. <laughs> uh, that is not okay. Yeah. yeah. Um, well, there you go. That, that is the podcast. Is, that is the podcast. There's midweek action, FA Cup action, Manchester United in action today. Uh, so that we'll is right on that. Like we said, Thursday, JJ, it's CONCACAF's moment in the sun. Let's go Tigres. As they nice face. break from nice break from the Barclays. And uh, then Barclays returns on Saturday. Yes, it sure does. Uh, this was fun, man. Our thanks to Tony Evans from the independent, check him out on, uh, on their website, on Twitter. Great stuff with, uh, with him um, early Tony's on. Brilliant. 
Yep. Uh, hey, you were brilliant as well. I appreciate all your hard work, your effort. It was, it was great. It was not a nine nil pasting. Certainly not. No, maybe, I think we put a in it. But I, no, I, I, let's not give ourselves too much of a pat on the back. This podcast was a 3-3 draw with Dominic Calvert-Lewin at the back post. I'll take that. I'll take that. Hey, good stuff, man. To you, I say. Check you later, fun boy. See ya. Take care, bro. You've been listening to the Caught Offside Soccer Podcast. 